thinking of a summer getaway? It's time to visit friends, family and the places you love with Stanoline. It's time to jump in the car and pack what you want without worrying about baggage charges. And it's time we welcome you on board where everything is just right. Or as we say in Sweden, la gom. Let us take care of the big little things that make every sailing spacious, stylish and safe. Get away to Britain or Europe from only €139 one way for a car and driver. Book today at stanaline.ie. Is there any real consequences to our actions? Newton's law would tell us, for every action, there is both an equal and opposite reaction. But is this law exclusive to the sciences? Does it include human nature? Or even the nature of those in power? What if a series of actions led to a reaction so disproportionate to the others it defied logic? What would the effect of this be on your life and those around you? It is the life of man born in Galway which answers these questions for us. This is his story. On Christmas Eve in 1899, in a village called Ballinmoe, a child is born. His name was James Daly. James was the son of bakers, James Sr. and Kate. He and his family worked hard as they could in the bakery. He knew little of the constructs of a social life. Ensuring the family was in a position to eat, pay bills and keep the bailiff from their door was their number one concern. Being the local town bakers, the family were central to the village's existence. So too was it to them. When times got tough in the west of Ireland and money was not easily available to those living in the area, James's parents decided they would need to move closer to the cities in order to ensure they could keep their children fed and clothed. They moved towards Dublin, but seeing the costs of doing business in the city, they decided to set up a new bakery in Tyrrells Pass, County Westmeath. This is where James flourished as a young boy. His parents' bakery again became the centre of the town's activities. James himself became the centre of his friend groups. They all looked to him to come up with games they could play or instigate some form of mischief. He was known to be tremendous fun with the other children and to be at the forefront of any trouble they might find themselves in. Never shy of conflict, nor to step back from an argument, James showed early on he was a natural leader. When World War I broke out, James was just 15. He watched as over 200,000 young Irish boys went off to war. He attended the massive rallies, encouraging the young men of Ireland to go to war for the Empire. He heard of the adventures that were sold to them, of the places they would see and the strange people they would meet. Being too young to enlist, he watched with awe as one by one the young men of the town set off to Europe. Weeks and months passed, and he began hearing stories of the brave Irishmen at war. Newspapers began publishing stories of the bravery of the Irishmen in the British Army, 
and how all those who wanted to serve Ireland should join them. Every morning, a new war hero would be declared in the national media for something they had done in the war. He waited for the day someone he knew would appear as one of the heroes of the paper. He would have loved to have known a celebrity of war. Seldom was there a mention of their deaths or the horrors of the reality of this war. It was portrayed to be a glorious battlefield of honour. After months of learning of the Irish in the army, James began to notice that seldom, if ever, did his friends return from Europe. On a near daily basis, he saw the mothers of his friends receive letters and break down in tears as they opened them in front of their door. It began to become a habit for the people of the towns to stand at their doors and await the postman. Each mother would beg and pray he did not visit their doorway. Two years into the war, James went as usual to buy the newspapers to search for the names of the boys he knew. He was shocked to discover that a fierce battle had taken place in Ireland between Irishmen and the British Army. He learnt that a group of rebels had marched from Liberty Hall to the GPO and had held a rising. He was shocked. He couldn't understand how the Irish in the British Army could turn their weapons on the Irishmen and women in the GPO. Similarly, he couldn't understand how the Irish in the GPO could shoot the Irish in the army. A great confusion fogged his mind. After the rising, hard times visited rural Ireland once again. As punishment for the failed rising, the Irish people fell victim to harsher laws and penalties from the Empire. James' parents' bakery became regularly visited by agents of the Crown, thoroughly checking books, raiding storerooms in search of rebels and theft of their higher priced goods as a means of keeping the agents happy. With the fear of movement by the people who were being interrogated at every turn and an inability to earn a decent salary, the bakery began to suffer as a business. In 1919, as the war wound down, James decided that in order to gain employment and to be one less mouth to feed for the family, he left home and joined the British Army. This was a regular occurrence across Ireland, as it was one of the few jobs the Crown would allow the Irish people to do. In the eyes of the British establishment, the Irish were not fit to practice medicine or to govern, but they were perfectly capable of dying en masse. An ideal race for war fodder. When James enlisted, he joined the Connacht Rangers. Scale Fadiger. The Connacht Rangers were an Irish regiment of the British Army. They first formed in 1881 and were one of eight exclusively Irish regiments. 
Its headquarters were based in Galway, hence the ancient provincial name. The Rangers were largely made up of Irishmen who had little options by way of work. Most were the poor sons of tenant farmers who would not have had the opportunity or the finances to take over the home farm or purchase one of their own. With little infrastructure for work for the poor Irish outside of farming in the west of Ireland, the army provided the promise of a roof, a meal and clothing. They were noted throughout their history of being fierce fighters and took part in the Second Boer War, the First World War and even against the Irish rebels during the 1916 Rising. James received his deployment letter, packed his bags, hugged his mother goodbye and boarded a ship for India. The journey was tough. James had never been at sea before and found it hard for his stomach to settle. He spent much of the weeks at sea, hunched over the back of the ship and expelling his previous meal into the wild ocean. It was hard to sleep at night too, with the thrashing of the ocean, but eventually with weariness and a lack of nutrition would get the better of him and he would nod off for a few minutes at a time, until the claxton would boom to alert him to his daily duties. When they eventually did land in India, James immediately went to write to his mother. He told her of the awful journey he had had, but not to worry, he was in solid ground now and he was excited for the journey ahead. James's mother wrote him back and they began a regular flow of letter writing, back and forth, as often as they could. His first roles in India were mainly to manage the people out there. The army had gone there to be a form of military police. James and the other Connacht Rangers found it hard to manage this internally, given what they experienced in their own homeland. Their experience of living under an oppressive force and now being part of that oppressive force did not sit well with their souls. They quickly saw that their journeys in the army would not be for another false glory in battle, but rather as individuals who would point guns at the poor people in the name of the empire. James wrote home to his mother, telling her of his torment. For fear it would be read by one of his superiors, however, he could not be blatant about it. But like all mothers, she could read the words he wished he had wrote. She wrote back and she told him of how a similar force had now arrived at home. The black and tans had settled themselves into the minds of the Irish as a constant fear. She told him of how she was chased by bullets through the village as they practiced their aim. She told him of how she had to weave zigzag shapes through the streets she loved, avoiding them ripping through her ankles with the bullets. 
James wept as he read her stories. He crumpled up the no tear-stained letter and threw it in the bin. Later that evening, he met with the other boys from Ireland and they each exchanged similar stories from home. They understood this wasn't a one-off and this was a systematic, planned, further oppression of the Irish who were now nothing more than moving targets for training the Empire's forces, of which they were a part. James continued to write home, telling of the different things he saw. He tried to cover up his turmoil for his mother's benefit. A letter came back from his mother, telling him of how the bakery they had worked so hard for had been attacked by the Black and Tans, and how they had been beaten up and everything in the shop had been stolen. Money, flour, eggs, chairs, whatever they wanted. She also told him that a group of boys were now fighting back. Tom Barry, Dan Breen, Sean Tracy and others had downed their tools in the fields and factories which were feeding and driving the empire at the expense of their lives. She told him how these young men had now picked up weapons and were leading a ferocious battle against the British. They were the guns of the people. James felt an immense pride burning inside him. He was thankful for the boys he had never met for the fact that they were now risking their lives to protect people like his mother. Again, that night, James and the other Irish boys met and swapped stories from home. One of them, who had just returned from leave, said he had been to a hurling match in Clare and the match had been stopped by the Black and Tans who marched onto the field and placed bayonets against the throats of the players until they left the field. James, burdened by the feeling that they must do something, came up with a plan that the Irish would down tools against the Empire's oppression. The following morning, as the army superiors walked through the camps, they found a Union Jack on the ground, with boot prints smashed into it. They grabbed it and furiously shouted, Who did this? Announce yourself at once. A British soldier replied, The Irish, sir. They're having a paddy moment. They marched to the Connacht Rangers tent and found high above it flew a tricolour. On the wall at the front of the tent they had written Liberty Hall, named after the place in Dublin where the Irish Revolution had begun. Outside the tent they had placed their guns. When asked what they were doing, James told the officers the Irish would no longer fight for the oppressor of the world. Inside, he saw 30 Irish boys standing behind James. Word got out across the British army that the Irish were now rebelling. And soon, across a 200 mile area, over 150 other Connacht Rangers had placed their weapons on the floor too and walked away from them. The Irish had risen above their rank. They refused to pick their weapons up again until the Black and Tans were removed from Ireland.
The others, across the 200-mile plain, all marched to where James and his comrades were based and sat together as Irishmen, ready to fight for Ireland, but nobody else. This peaceful protest began to grow as the English soldiers, born to Irish parents in Britain, also downed tools and joined the men from the old country. As they joined them, they told them the army were planning on raiding their Liberty Hall and would kill anyone who tried to stop them. James, fearing for the safety of the others, led a group to try and recover their weapons so they could defend themselves if this was true. As they neared the ammunition centre, they were captured. Their makeshift Liberty Hall was raided and 88 of the rebels were court-martialed and trialled for treason. Everyone who took part was stripped of their rank, awards, pension and salary. 77 of those court-martialed served prison terms. Only 10 of that group were acquitted. One remained, James. It was decided, for his role in leading the mutiny, James should join the other leaders of the Irish Revolution. He was to be executed. On November 2nd, 1920, at just 20 years old, James was brought into a prison courtyard. He was offered a blindfold, but refused it as he wanted to die as an Irishman. He faced the firing squad. He was asked had he any last words, and he simply replied, I would have liked to have seen my mother again. As his sentence came to an end, a volley of shots ran out across the prison. The heads of his comrades fell inside in the prison cells as life left James's body. The following morning, a letter arrived home. My dearest mother, I take this opportunity of writing to you to let you know the dreadful news that I am to be shot on Tuesday morning, the 2nd of November. What harm? It is all for Ireland. I'm not afraid to die, but it is thinking of you I am. James was buried in the prison after his death. Fifty years later, in 1970, his family sought out and brought his body home to back to a free Ireland. They buried him in a graveyard near his family's bakery in Tyrrell's Pass. James was the last member of the British Army to be executed. Today's music was written, performed and produced by Ryan O'Halloran. 
The story was researched and scripted by myself, Oren. If you enjoyed the story and want to help support this podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash we the Irish. We would also appreciate if you could leave a review of the podcast on whatever app you listen on. We the Irish is an Ireland Loves production. Ornus Anam Dum, Gurv Magut, Slonanish.